Welcome to Lost in Twin Peaks. Today's episode is the Season 3 Part 9 Archive. I'm going to read from a piece I wrote at the time of this episode, and I don't have too much else to share here in terms of that past work, but I do also want to tease the next episode by playing the first minute of Part 10, and uh, there'll be a fair warning before that if you haven't watched Part 10 yet, if you're watching this along or listening to this along with the series, and you want to take a pause there, watch the episode, and come back and hear me uh, play the audio from it, and then describe what happens. But uh, before we get to that, let's look at what I said about Part 9 back then. We can, pretty officially, lay to rest the idea that Vegas, South Dakota, and or Twin Peaks storylines take place in different realities. By now, they've all intersected. It's also fairly clear that Bad Cooper is the one trying to kill Dougie, not Philip Jeffries or insurance co-conspirators or debt collectors or the unseen billionaire, unless he's also the doppelganger, which I doubt. Ironically, this consolidation occurs in an episode which actually utters the phrase alternate reality, but the way this concept is used itself feels more genre-adherent and straightforward than the Lynchian paradoxes of, say, Inland Empire. In fact, this sort of context is a bit startling in the Lynch work, referring to the Hastings monologue, and it continues a trend that has been well-observed throughout the new series, as far back as the surprisingly expositional Black Lodge sequences in Part 2, and particularly in the avant-garde short-meets-mythological-origin-story approach of Part 8. For the most part, we seem to be witnessing Lynch illustrating and developing essentially Frostian narrative concepts, rather than fusing both visions or alternating between them as the original series did. This is made for enjoyable, gripping storytelling, and a fascinating texture, which cultivates the yin-yang of these two complementary yet very different artists, in a way that even the original series never quite did. However, such an approach leaves me with some questions and concerns. My favorite Lynch works tend to be the ones that emphasize psychodramatic dream logic over sci-fi fantasy logistics. They always locate the strangeness and trauma with real-world resonance. I'm not quite seeing that yet in The Return, whose interplay of good and evil forces and interpenetration between the two worlds thus far exists primarily on the surface level, without a sense that we are witnessing an allegorical representation, or, conversely, the archetypal underpinning of some hidden event. This doesn't mean that the story can't have broader thematic ramifications, but so far they remain cerebral and abstract, rather than visceral, in the fashion of Lynch's other films, see Diane's Jealousy, Laura's Sorrow, or Nikki's Disorientation in Mulholland Drive, Firewalk With Me, or Inland Empire. While I enjoy watching the scattered threads wind together, and am delighted by the creative ways the writers have brought back old characters and situations to feed into a very new drama, I'm hoping that eventually these elements will wrap not just around a solid story structure, but an as-yet-elusive emotional core. This concludes my coverage of Part 9, and now we look forward to Part 10. So let's kick off with the opening minute. If you haven't seen the episode yet and you want to see and hear it simultaneously with your own eyes and ears, hold on and um, you know, take a pause, come back and listen to this when you're done. If you don't care or you have seen it, keep listening. Here's the audio from Part 10, followed by my description.
Miriam. Go away, Richard. Hey, hey, I just want to talk to you. I already told the police it was you who ran over the little boy. You already told the police? Yes. Stay away, Richard. Tell anybody else? No. But I don't know why you're not arrested, so I also wrote a letter. What do you mean, a letter? I wrote a letter to the sheriff, Sheriff Truman, and mailed it, telling him everything I know. Fade up on a mountain. No clean, triangular slope. It amounts to essentially three craggy, broad peaks, the left and middle separated by a slight indentation, the middle and right cleaved apart by a deeper but narrow trench. The brown rock faces of these monuments are dotted with patches of evergreen. On the right side, the broadest part of the mountain, this patch becomes a full thick beard, aside from the steep sandy trail snaking its way in two directions through this wood, forming a V. The foreground is also lined with the tops of such trees, silhouetted against the bright middle ground which only harbors a few shadows in that trench and behind a few thrusting formations on the mountain faces, a light blue sky serves as further background. The fade begins after a second of ambiance with a black screen, and the shot itself lasts about five seconds from when the quick fade-up finishes. Then we are on to an establishing shot that better situates us where the following scene will take place. The mountain is now mostly obscured by the foreground, though it punctuates the upper left side of the frame, or perhaps this is a different formation, maybe even a large hill, its top is much more thickly green and lushly forested than what we were shown in the previous shot. In a flat little patchy field, very much a yard rather than a lawn, a wood cabin tilts slightly to our right. A tree with light green leaves juts out behind it, blending in somewhat with the line of light trees further back. Bushes, or perhaps cut down but untransported trees on the, lying on their sides, surround the cabin, especially on the lean-to side, below the roof line. In the foreground, on screen right, is a shadowed tree, its stubby branches with little leaves forming a cluttered but not particularly dense canopy, with plenty of sky showing through. It tilts, like the cabin, but in the opposite direction, which means they tilt toward each other, from its slender trunk, at least the part visible to us which we can glimpse jutting out from a thicker bent, mostly off-screen trunk. The cabin and tree both tilt, it appears, toward a trailer near the center of the frame, mostly white with a light green line across the bottom and across its middle and around the door frame, and a thicker, even lighter green, perhaps even a yellow, band across the window space with a faint green line framing it above. A little unpainted picket fence, perhaps knee or hip high, encircles the trailer, which has a few potted plants at its foundation and a broad wooden stairway leading up to its door with a little porch. The fence has a wide opening, no latched gate, making it far more a decorative flourish than a truly protective barrier. Some lawn ornaments huddle around the periphery, difficult to glimpse at this distance, but whose red, white, and orange-tannish coloring suggest Christmas decorations, as do the hooked canes that appear to feature green and red stripes. Thirteen seconds in, another cut, a short dirt path, a driveway it seems. The driveway ends at another wooden structure, this one more upright but not much less dilapidated than the previously glimpsed cabin. A red tin roof crowns its long, narrow boards, some of which are missing. A wooden ladder against its side leads up to a hinged loft door. Some rusty equipment sinks into overgrowth against its right wall. On the left side, there is a barn door opening to the blackness within, hardly inviting. The driveway is lined on one side by a tangled bushy wood, or at least a line of evergreens we can't see through. On the other side, by a patchy yard probably adjacent to what was just presented to us. A large clump, several feet high and several more feet wide, of dead branches and brush 
is the only disruption of this flat surface, lying in wait as if for a bonfire. From the moment this shot is introduced, a car is nosing into the frame from the left side. It's white above the front wheel, and we soon see red above the rear wheel with an otherwise dusty, rusty green body. Its front wheel has no hubcap, though its left wheel does. Dented, dirty, or graffitied, it's hard to tell. The car shortly comes to a stop near a pile of brush, and Richard gets out, slams the door, and circles back around the back in a glowering rush. He is dressed similarly to his previous scenes, with skinny jeans, dark shoes, perhaps boots, a flannel shirt whose open collar reveals a gray undershirt, and a black hooded jacket, or brown hooded jacket, rather, unzipped. He looks around as he crosses the yard, the camera panning to follow him in the first movement of this opening minute, linking the barn and cabin, they're only a few feet apart, it appears, with a dirt path stretching in the distance behind and between them. And this shot leads us to the trailer. This shot is closer than the previous one, with that aforementioned tree's branches filling the top of the frame and obscuring any mountain view. Richard stops at the fence, even though, as noted, no gate stops him there. We can dimly perceive Marion as a shadowy figure inside the doorway, behind the closed but plate glass door. Now about 35 seconds in, our third cut. A medium shot of Richard, a reverse revealing more structures behind him. A long, ranch-style wooden tin-roofed building, some sort of shed, Trees and fencing and the occasional brick-brack filling the remaining space. There is no suggestion that other people live or are present in any of these buildings. We're isolated and yet surrounded. Richard leans slightly to his left as he calls to Marion, a hesitant, not particularly reassuring smile on his face, as his piercing eyes remain locked on the door in front of him. A closer reverse shot over Richard's shoulder shows his own reflection in the door glass, brighter than the shadowy Marianne. We may also notice a metal pot full of red and one or two green apples on the edge of her porch, a little angel figurine in front of the modest patch of garden on the left side of the frame, a potted plant hangs from the window between the apples and the angel, and the window between Richard's shoulder and Marion's door, we can plainly observe a miniature Christmas tree. Indeed, the resident's holiday decorations must never have been removed. Above the edge of the door, a small chimney-like structure pokes up, apparently composed of deep brown wood and probably a birdhouse cut back to the reverse of Richard as he takes a step forward, and then back to the -the over-the-shoulder shot as he walks further into it, uh, revealing a little table with a yellow cup and white flower to his right. Marianne is leaning far enough towards the door that her face is momentarily illuminated. Reverse shot, now a tighter medium because Richard, not the camera, has moved, although he stops about a second into the shot. He casts his eyes downward contemplatively as Marianne responds to his inquiry, then back up at her as we cut again to the shot from behind him. Reverse for Richard's reaction, cut back as Marion continues, and our minute ends here, just long enough for the very last frame to reveal, if we look carefully, the barest hint that Richard is starting to glance to his right, surveying the scene to make sure they are truly alone. And on that ominous note, we'll conclude this episode And see you tomorrow for part 10, starting, as always, with the uh, discussion of Laura Palmer, which is important. She's in the title of this episode, obviously, so we'll have something to say about that. The feel of the episode and the structure of the episode, and then continue on with our week of episodes, as always. And I do plan to continue the tradition that I've now uh, resumed this past week of putting the Illustrated Companions at the uh, front of the of the week. So tomorrow, the Part 10 Illustrated Companion will be up uh, possibly 
you know, even before the episode uh, itself, the first episode of part 10. So you can look at all the categories, see the screenshots and so forth. So you can check that out. As always, please support this work by rating, reviewing, and subscribing on Apple Podcasts. You can also become a patron on patreon.com slash lost in the movies. See you tomorrow.